We read in chapter 1, verse 1, and then today in chapter 1, verse 12, that uh, Solomon wrote this while he was king. He wrote this not so much as a king in his role, but more of a speaker of an assembly. The preacher, or I think definitely the idea is that of a teacher. He's helping us understand uh, what's being said here. We looked a couple weeks ago at chapter 12, verse 9, where it says that he taught the people knowledge. He summarized this book in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He gave his plan for the book in verse 3. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And this summary and this plan basically says that sinners living in a sin-cursed world, they will always be limited. They'll always be frustrated. They will always be in the dark about ultimate meaning and purpose. Unbelievers will. And when you as a Christian kind of fall back into that and you take your eyes off the Lord and you start making plans and walking through life, uh, as James talks about, uh, remember James said in James chapter 4, uh, let us go to such and such a place and do business and all that. Is it wrong to make plans? No, but we need to say if the Lord wills and not just say it with our, mind, our mouths, but we need to think that. Solomon is encouraging you to have a God-centered perspective on all things. So he's told us in the first 11 or so verses, he's told us where we're going. He's kind of shown us a map. So now verse 12, we're finally going to get in the car and start the trip. Throughout human history, people have sought to make a difference in life. Try to make sense of life. Try to improve life. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, in the United States and in much of Western Europe, things were improving so much that people actually thought that the kingdom was right around the corner. They talked about laws becoming more just, people are becoming more kind and, and equitable, everything seemingly was improving. Then World War I happened, and then the Depression, and then World War II, and then the Cold War, and we could keep going on, couldn't we? Could keep going on. How many efforts have been made in human history to really try to make a difference? How many different ideas have been thought up by people thinking this is what life is about? Way more than your eye could ever grasp, understand, put our minds around, or learn. Solomon set out on a quest. He says here, Verse 13, I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that's done under heaven. And then he says in verse 16, I communed with my heart. That helps us see he is seeking answers to two questions. The first question is this, number one, verses 12 to 15. Can man's efforts, can man's efforts permanently improve life. Not merely improve, because there have been things that have improved life, but permanently improve, so that it never becomes bad again. 
We see in verse 12 and 13, Solomon had all the needed resources to put into this effort. I set my heart, verse 13, he was king over Israel to search out by wisdom concerning all that's done under heaven. The idea of my heart is he put his all into it. He held nothing back. His mind, his, his heart, uh, his, his will, his planning, his efforts. He devoted himself to it. He gave it his whole attention. I'm reminded here along this line, uh, the idea of the word is, is also seen in Isaiah 55, or Isaiah 53, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You don't seek him half-heartedly. You seek him wholeheartedly. That's what Solomon is doing here. He is seeking answers to this with all of his being. He wanted to get to the root of the issue. We also read that he sought to search out by wisdom. The idea here is Numbers 13 and verse 2, where the 12 spies were told to go and spy out the land. Same Hebrew word. Spy out the land. Look at everything. See what it's all involved. Look at every side of the subject. That's what Solomon is doing here. He's looking at every side, leaving no stone unturned. An exhaustive search. Solomon was the only one who could do this. He had the wisdom. He had the ability to learn and experience what he did. And he had the ability to teach us. And we need to take something away just from this right away. The thing that we need to take away from this is you must listen to what he has to say here. You need to learn and pay attention and don't just shrug it off. That would be the most foolish thing you could do to shrug off God's word because that's what this is. What's your attitude here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Are you here to truly hear what God says through Solomon? To listen and to learn? Or are you here because, well, that's just what you do on Sunday or you had no choice or you really would rather be somewhere else? Folks, this is the Lord speaking to us. We need to learn. His conclusion, number two, of this effort, it's can man's efforts permanently improve life? His conclusion was this, number two. Fallen man's efforts in a fallen world cannot change. They cannot change. And I guess I should have added another word, permanently. Cannot permanently change how things are. They cannot make a permanent change. So pick up in the middle of verse 13. He says, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. A couple of things I, we need to see here, what Solomon says. He says that the reason why fallen man's efforts in a fallen world cannot, cannot permanently change how things are is because, first, this is because God cursed the world. That's what we just read there. The burdensome task God gave to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. Wow, this, this is like, sounded like Solomon is saying, God, it's all your fault. Or it sounds like he's putting the blame on God. That's taking it a step too far. He is not blaming God for sin. What is he doing here? Hold your place. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses, 17, or verses 16 to 19.
Genesis 3, verses 16 and 19. What does Solomon mean by calling this the burdensome task that God has given to men? God said to Eve in Genesis 3, 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 then. That's what Solomon has in mind at the end of verse 13. This burdensome task, God cursed the world. Everything we do, it is a struggle, isn't it? You put in this struggle all your life, and then what happens at the end of your life? You die, and what happens to your body? You go in the dust. And what happened to all your labor? This is a theme that will recur in Ecclesiastes here. Solomon is saying this. Life can only correctly and fully be evaluated from God's perspective. The only way you can correctly evaluate life is from God's perspective. Solomon uses the name of God here. He never uses the name Lord in Ecclesiastes. That's the name of the covenant God. So he focuses on God in his absolute sovereignty here. That's why he uses this name for God here. God's absolute sovereignty. God made people to love him, didn't he? God made people to serve him. God made people to know him. God made people because he made them to love him, to serve him, and to know him. God made them so that they would know exactly why they are here on this earth. They wouldn't have to struggle. Why am I here? They wouldn't know frustration because, well, it was a perfect world. But what did man do? Man went away from God. He broke God's command. He did his own thing. And as a result, what did God do to Adam and Eve and to this world? He cursed it. Solomon is recognizing the curse of God on this world. He's not blaming God. He's recognizing the curse of God. Why did God curse the world? Because people sin against him. They turned away from God. And so instead of joy, God gave a burdensome task. Your next point. Why is it that fallen man's efforts in a fallen world cannot change how things are? Not only because God cursed the world, but because, secondly there, because of God's curse, fallen man always fails always fails and is frustrated. He always fails and is frustrated. Verse 14. 
So Solomon put all this effort to look at everything that humankind has done to try to make a permanent change in life. And he's seen all the works that are done under the sun. Indeed, it's all vanity and grasping for wind. He always fails and he's always frustrated. Every effort man makes for permanent, lasting improvement and changes, it always falls short. It never succeeds, and it's always a 100% failure rate. And what's Solomon's response to that? For the unbeliever, it is frustrating. It's a mystery. Why? It's seemingly fruitless. Remember trying to catch the wind? You're guaranteed to fail. Solomon then, the master of Proverbs, you might remember, gives us a proverb then to back up what he just said in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. He's saying here, fallen man's efforts in a fallen world cannot change the way things are because of God's curse. Fallen man's efforts in a fallen world, they will never permanently change the way things are because of God's curse. It's crooked. What's crooked? This life in a sin-cursed world. You can't make it straight. No human being can do that. There are things lacking in life because of sin. Can we ever supply what's lacking? We sinful human beings? No, we can't. It cannot be numbered. There will always be crooked things. There will always be missing things. That is because of the curse of sin in this world. The reason things get hard is sin. The reason that things are unanswerable, why? Is because of sin. Sinful man can never undo the kinks in life. Sinful man can never fill all the gaps in life. Let me give some illustrations of Solomon's point here. That man's efforts can never undo, can never permanently improve life in a sin-cursed world. Let me give you some examples. And this is going to sound frustrating, but don't worry, I'll bring things to a conclusion at the end, okay? Think about hospitals. Think about hospitals. Every hospital has a 100% failure rate. How so? What happens to every human being eventually? We all die, don't we? Every hospital has a 100% failure rate, ultimately, because of death. And why do we die? Because of sin. Let me give you another example. Every building program eventually crumbles. Doesn't that just kind of thrill your soul about our building program? Why does every building program ultimately crumble? Because of sin. Things break down. It's called entropy. Things left to themselves crumble. Science recognizes that, but science will not give God the glory and say the reason for that is because of sin. Another example. Every technological advantage, every technological advancement becomes outdated. Every technological advantage becomes outdated. 
We have some engineers in our church that have given their lives to technology. But what happens to technology eventually? It becomes outdated. I'm not saying this about our engineers because they know the Lord. But remember when the first cell phones came out? Wow, this is amazing. They were like bricks. Remember those things in the 80s and the 90s? You had to have an entire bag. And you look at those, that is so cool. Now we're like, I'll bring my phone, my phone. Really? That's cool. I don't want that thing. That's old. People, engineers, software people, they gave their lives for those things. And where are they now? Landfills, museums, recycled. One last thing to show that this is the case. Every political effort, every political effort is guaranteed to fall short, if not fail entirely. It will never make straight what is crooked. Sin is the reason why people are bewildered. Sin is the reason why people get frustrated, angry. Sin is the reason why people are unfulfilled. Sin is the reason why people are mystified and puzzled. That they look back on their decades of life and, what did I just do? Solomon's first question, can man's efforts permanently improve life? His answer, they can never permanently change how things are. Solomon asks the second question that he seeks to answer. Number two, can man's wisdom, well, his actions can't do it. Maybe he's thought of something really good. Can man's wisdom provide a thorough understanding of life? Can man's wisdom provide a thorough understanding of life? And again, Solomon starts off showing he was ready to make a thorough study, a full study of this, verses 16, the first part of verse 17. He said in verse 16, I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. In other words, he was in a position to do a thorough study about this. He had the wealth, the time, the knowledge, and the wisdom. Have you ever had something that you really wanted to dig into? I mean, you were just looking, I want to learn more about this. But, there's always that word, but, what? I need to go to work. I've got this happening. Oh, I need to eat. We need to do this. And so you make a mental note. Or if you don't trust your mental notes, you'll write it on a post-it note. And you'll stick it on the refrigerator with the dozens of other things that you've been wanting to look at. And eventually, as time goes, I never got to that. We lack the time. Or we lack the financial resources to really dig into it, to take the time off, to study it more. Or we just didn't have the smarts. I remember when I got my seminary catalog back in 1991, the seminary ended up going to, 
And I looked at all the courses that were in there. Oh, I was just so excited. I loved learning. I loved the classroom. And I saw all the New Testament courses and the Old Testament courses, the Greek and the Hebrew, and I'm going to take it all. They had Ugaritic. That's a language that was common in the ancient Near East during that time. Yeah, I'm going to take Ugaritic, and I'm going to take Aramaic. And I'm going to take that and that and that and that. I look forward to it. I just wanted to learn and soak it all in. When we started seminary, though, I had three kids, two and under, because he had twins. I worked 50 hours a week in a factory. And then the Lord brought Hannah. We had four kids, three and unders. We spent more on diapers than on food. We got to about 1997, 1998, when I'm finally starting Hebrew, and I, my attitude about Hebrew was no longer one of, this is great, but I want to quit. This is frustrating. It's an enigma. And my wife, holding four kids, figuratively kicked me back downstairs and said, you get back to studying there. Because it was a team effort. We weren't really looking ahead to, how can I get all these classes done? Guess what we were looking at? We just need to get done. How can we get done? I had so many things I wanted to learn. You know, I'd still like to learn Ugaritic. I'd still like to delve into all that stuff. It sounds really fun. Might not sound fun to you, but you have things that you'd like to learn, that you'd like to dig into, don't you? But you can't because you got things that you have to do. My point here, Solomon evaluated every possible idea and philosophy, and he could devote himself to it. And we have the results of his work here. We need to learn what he has to say. Number two, his conclusion after doing this full study Fallen man's knowledge in a fallen world only brings misery. It only brings misery. How so? Well, first we need to recognize what Solomon says here when he says that he sought to know wisdom and madness and folly. He basically says this. This is the next point. Showing that it brings misery. Wisdom and folly exist simultaneously as equal, legitimate. That's your blank there. They exist in man's eyes. You need to understand that, not from God's eyes, but they exist from man's eyes as equal, legitimate options. But that's because of the curse on the world. Unbelievers are thoroughly corrupted by sin. I taught this last Sunday afternoon, I'm trying to be a good witness and testimony. Sin affects their minds. Yet, sinners are still in God's image. It's corrupted, it's marred, and it's fallen. But they have still God-given ability. But they use those God-given abilities for man-centered ends. And so when he says here, I set my heart, verse 17, to know wisdom... He is looking at the skillful ways man has taken knowledge and put it to use. Like what? How could a person, I don't have my knife on me, 
How could a person use a knife skillfully? Individuals go to school for well over a decade to use a very fine knife called a scalpel to do surgery on our bodies. That is wise use of knowledge, isn't it? Other individuals put their knowledge, their abilities to understand technology and they can make things happen with wire and solder and circuit boards that are like, wow, this is great. Others can take uh, a thing with uh, a wood handle and a metal on the top, form it into a hammer. They can build amazing structures. Others are just smart and they can use that for so many things. What about madness and folly? Here, Solomon is talking about just plain old hedonism, pleasure-seeking, self-gratifying. And I'm not going to get into depth with that today because, well, that's next Sunday's message from Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. That'll be developed more. But Solomon's point with either the wisdom or the madness and folly, neither depends on God and neither is used for God's glory. It's all self-centered. And what's the result? He hijacks what God's given for sinful ends. And the result is your next point. Fallen man's wisdom cannot provide satisfactory answers. They cannot provide satisfactory answers. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. So unbeliever, he's hijacked all this stuff that God's given him, used it for sinful ends, and it will never bring final, perfect, are you ready? Comprehensive understanding of all of life. It will never bring a perfect, comprehensive understanding of all of life. He's looked at every idea, every philosophy, every possible thing, and it's fruitless. It's a grasping for wind. And just like in the first part, he gives us a proverb to back up what he just said, verse 18. In much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What's he saying here? The more you learn about life and God's creation, the more you learn about life and God's creation, the less that you're going to understand why are things, why are there difficulties. You're going to fail. You're going to Unless you're going to understand the unknowns and the hardships. In fact, the more you learn, the more you learn about problems. And so it's, it almost seems better not to learn, because then you don't know. And that's where we get the saying, ignorance is bliss. People will ask, who have the greatest knowledge, why is this happening? I, oh, I don't understand. It's not supposed to be happening this way. The more you learn, the more attuned you are to problems in life. Let me give you some examples, like I did with the first one. A professional drywaller. We have no professional drywallers, to my knowledge, here in our church body. I think many of us have tried our hand at drywalling, though. The first house that we owned in Detroit, Michigan area, my first pastorate, we had a wall that needed to be redone. 
And we were really thankful when we got it done. But the guy who helped us, he was not a professional drywaller, but he could see the little outline where he didn't sand it just right. And every time that Dale came over, he'd look over and he'd do this. He'd go, I really need to redo that again. And we're like, no, 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 no. You're not touching our wall. He could tell. He could look at it. People who know their business with drywall and they can see that is a shoddy job. That was not well done. Or you have someone who's a trained musician who can really sing. And he comes and he listens to me leading singing. I don't know if you heard it. There were several times during the, the third, I think it was the third hymn today, where the notes start going. And it's when you hear that, you know, to us, I don't think you're going to cringe. But guess what a professionally trained musician is going to do? Oh. oh, no, I can't listen to that right now. Or someone who's a pianist par excellence listening to my daughter. That pianist par excellence is going to say, I've never heard anything better. <laughs> right? They're probably going to hear some mistakes. Or we can apply this to anything in life, couldn't we? To every situation. Could apply to cooking. I bring out what I made and the professional chef or baker or cook is going to be like, uh, no, I don't think so. He's, we see all the problems because we know it thoroughly. It's almost, Solomon says, a curse to know so much because we just can't enjoy it. Where I'm like, hey, that was great. Or I really enjoyed the congregational singer. Thanks so much for doing our drywall. It's great for me. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow, period. Wow. Thanks, Solomon. Thanks for the uplifting message for this morning. Let's pray and we'll be done and end on a negative note, shall we? You think, is that Solomon's intent? Well, no, it's not. He is, he is not saying this in this book for that end. So we need to see this isn't all hopeless. It is hopeless. It is hopeless if you're living still under the power of sin and you love it and you haven't trusted in Christ and you haven't turned from your sin and depend on the Lord Jesus. Because everything you do, unbeliever, everything you do, everything you learn, ultimately it's going to result in frustration and fruitlessness. It is guaranteed every time. When you live on your own, you live by your own understanding, and you continue to rebel against your maker, you might experience some fun in this life. You might experience some positive things in this life. But there will be a payday someday. And everything that you do, eventually, it's going to fall apart. When you're young, it's hard to grasp that. So you ask some of the older folks around here. Older folks, remember when you got your first car? We get a smile on our face. Yeah, I remember that car. Young people can't wait to get their first car, their first four-wheeler or whatever it might be. They just can't wait. It's going to be the greatest thing. 
And those of us who've been around the sun a couple dozen times, we say, yeah, I remember that car. It's rust now. It's in some dump somewhere. Why does that happen? Because of life in a sin-cursed world. My point is this. If you don't know Christ and you keep living from one thing to the next, you will always disappoint. You'll always be looking for something in this world. You will never find true joy, never find true meaning by doing this. You're guaranteed to be frustrated because God has cursed this world and he has made the life of every unrepentant sinner burdensome. So there is good news, isn't there? The good news is that if you turn to Christ and you do depend on him, the light bulb goes on. The light of Christ enters your life and you see, you start to see things from God's point of view. You start to live from God's point of view. And as a Christian, when you live for Christ, let's consider these two questions, these two things that Solomon sought to get answers to. When you live for Christ, number one, in the things that you do, when you do them in the name of Christ, they bring glory to him. Let me give you some passages here. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Colossians 3:17 Whether you eat whether you whatever whether you do in word whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him and you know who he's talking to he was talking to slaves who didn't have a choice and what they wanted to do for a living you do and 1 Corinthians 15:58 be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Everything that you do in the name of Christ has significance because you're doing it for Christ. Same thing with the second part of learning. Everything that you learn, you're using it for Christ's purposes. Two more passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. You bring every thought captive, do you remember the rest? To the obedience of Christ. You're using your mind not for selfish things and not for pride, but you're using your mind to glorify the Lord. Another passage to write down, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, where Christ is, then you have a right orientation, a right perspective, a right direction, and a right assessment. So Christian, your knowledge, your efforts, when they're controlled because you love the Lord, when they're controlled by a desire to see him glorified, guess what happens? Remember what I said about hospitals? Guaranteed 100% failure rate? When you as a Christian say you're working in a hospital, you are bringing glory to God by using the gifts and abilities. When you're using your gifts and abilities in a building program, that will crumble because we live in a sin-cursed world. You're doing it in Colossians 3.17 in the name of Christ. And so it brings glory to Him. If you work in technology, same thing. I don't know if you remember the fourth example I used. Politics. Even in politics, 
If Christ is first, you're bringing every thought captive. You glorify him through that. Only when you live and learn in relation to Jesus Christ is the big picture truly, correctly, satisfactorily seen. That's the thing we must learn from this. Only, only when you live in relation to Jesus Christ will life, the big picture, be truly seen, correctly seen, satisfactorily seen. And that applies to everyone here. Applies to students. Applies to you when you've got to do your chores. Applies to workers who are just grinding away. It applies to pastors who work on a sermon, who give it. And I've had this feeling sometimes. I just dumped hours of my week into that and then it's done. Wait, that's it? It's just saved on the hard drive and in the cloud. That's it? I want to preach that again. I'm going to preach it again next week just because I put such effort into it. It was such a good sermon. I felt I'm going to preach it three times in a row. No. It applies for retirees who think that they've never been busier. It applies for lovers of learning. When Christ is your Savior and He's your Lord of every aspect and fiber of your life, no aspect of your life is a waste. It all has meaning because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.